have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, February 29th, 2008. This week, episode 71 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Cliff, and the wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. Great to be back all in the same room at once here. We've been on the road, but we've still been coming to you. I'd like to uh, first uh, give you a little idea of the lineup today. We've got the microband trivia quiz, and we've got an hour with Mr. Joe Steebrook. And looking forward to it. Uh, Joe is a guru in the building science world and looking forward to spending the whole time with him. We will also bring in a couple people for the roundtable. And if we get any questions from uh, viewers, we'll bring those in as well. Before we start, though, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And the Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. To contact the show, just go to talkshoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com's website. Our show ID is 1547, and you can call in or just listen over the internet now they've tried to make things a lot easier we also appreciate any suggestions we'll take questions at joe.hughes that's h-u-g-h-e-s at iaqtraining.com or cliff zlotnick that's z-l-o-t-n-i-k at unsmoke.com you can also go to our iaqradio.com website and post questions there. Last but not least please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to send it over to Cliff for the microband trivia quiz. Good news. We had a correct answer for last week's trivia question. I'll repeat the question and the answer. In 1999, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation conducted research on residential furnace filter efficiency. One type of filter studied produced ozone as a byproduct of its operation. Name the type of filter which produced ozone. Correct answer came in February 23, 2008 at 11.48 a.m. Charlie Wiles was the correct answer. Charlie, please send us your address and we'd be glad to send you our microband gift. Chris. All right. Uh, Chris, the envelope, please. Thanks. The microband trivia question for Friday, February 29, 2008. A study was done by the University of Arizona to determine whether women or men have dirtier offices. The researchers swabbed and sampled the offices of men and women in five cities. Researchers found twice as much bacteria in women's offices than was found in men's. They also swabbed personal items of the study participants. Our trivia question for today is, what item, either in the office or a personal item, harbored the most bacteria? Back to you, Joe. All right. 
Thank you, Cliff. I think we might be able to find Charlie's address for you there. Okay, good. Good to hear you're listening, Charlie. Thanks. All right. Our first guest today is Mr. Joseph Stebrook. He's a Ph.D. and a professional engineer and a principal of Building Science Consulting, LLC. He is also an ASHRAE fellow. Joe has 25 years of experience in design, construction, investigation, and building science research. Through the Department of Energy's Building America program, Dr. Stebrook has forged partnerships with designers, builders, developers, material suppliers, and equipment manufacturers to build high-performance homes across the U.S. Joe is also a widely recognized speaker on indoor air quality and building science issues, and I believe we've got some intro music for him. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul has got to move. I tell you, my soul has got to move. I tell you, my soul has got to move. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul has got to move. I got another building, building not bad. Yes, if there's a leak, Joe will find it. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the Church of Building Science. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You forgot to mention in the intro that I like beer. Right, okay. He likes beer. You know, by the way, I I was supposed to mention, and I forgot, our technical director, who also likes beer, couldn't make it this week. Dr. Dieter Dieter is in uh, Aruba. So uh, he's on vacation, but uh, we've got the other doctor, Dr. Joe, in. Welcome, Joe. Well, thank you. I, uh, good old Dr. Dieter sent me an email, wanted to talk to me about filtration. I said, go on vacation, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to uh, summer camp. Maybe we'll bring that music up and uh, see if the guys can recreate it. Joe, what we're going we talked to Andy Osk a little bit last week about uh, building science. I just wanted to start with, you know, what is your definition of the term building science? That's the study of building enclosures and mechanical systems. Um, That's pretty simple. Um, We can get more philosophical as you describe it as the uh, technical side of architecture or the architectural side of engineering. Um, Architects today are trained as artists and don't know much about the physics of environmental separation, material science, mechanical systems, and whatever. They're trained in the arts departments. Uh, So this is the missing information that you need in order to be an architect. Engineers, um, they know everything about materials. They know everything about structure. They just don't know, when you put all these materials together in a structure, how they actually work. And so it's the missing link between uh, the architectural profession and engineering uh, profession. Joe, the United States is noted for scientific development. We're also noted for, you know, architectural beauty and so on and so forth. How does the United States rate when compared to other countries such as Canada and Scandinavia when it comes to building or construction science? Well, you're going to be surprised at this answer. Um, It actually rates pretty good. Um, Canadians know a great deal about um, heating cold climates because there are only two seasons there this winter and last winter. <laughs> the uh, Scandinavians, well, they're they're all alcoholics. And, uh, they they build they build furniture. They're anal. They're precise. Um, nobody can afford their cars. Nobody can afford their furniture. Um, and they look at things uh, in an overly analytical way, but only from a cold climate perspective. Um, the United States is the only uh, industrialized nation that is dominated by air conditioning, which means that there's also heating and air conditioning, and the energy flow, uh, the moisture flows, are in both directions, from the inside out as well as from the outside in. That makes the United States of America the most difficult place in the world to build and to understand the physics. Um, we can't get our information from Canada, except for <laughs> one or two months of the year. 
um, we can't get our information from Europe. And so um, in terms of air conditioning, um, hot and humid construction practices, the United States is, in fact, a world leader. Um, the irony is, is nobody in the United States knows this. We're constantly importing stupid Euro trash architectural concepts um, you know, it, that don't work in the United States. It's, it's bizarre. You don't air condition in Germany. They build crappy houses in Germany. They build great cars. <laughs> they, don't, they don't build very good structures. However, people seem to think that they do. So they've got this great undeserved um, reputation. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, they look down their nose. It was kind of fun because I go work in Europe and, you know, I you know, kind of point out that they don't know what they're doing. And then they say, well, he's, he's not really American. He's from Canada. Canadians <laughs> <laughs> really know this. And I say, well, you know, whatever. You're, you're idiots. You don't know how to do air conditioning. Stick to building cars. Well, tell us how you really feel, Joe. No, just uh, how long... I'm curious, Joe, your PhD, I believe, is in building science. How long has that even existed? Well, no, my PhD is in, engineer, is in engineering. Is it? Okay. Uh, so you have to speak slowly and use small words around me. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, it's in civil engineering. Um, my undergrad is in mechanical. But in uh, Canada, uh, building science is taught formally um, in the Department of Civil Engineering, and that may sound a little strange, but um, a great deal of building science deals with moisture, moisture transport through porous media, and the uh, physics of that is actually comes from us from soil science. And so soil, clay, as basically a porous medium, Darcy's law, capillarity, surface tension, all of those things are taught um, in soil science. And so to really understand material science and building you actually have to understand soil science, and so that's where it uh, found its home. So the building science is taught through the Department of Civil Engineering. In the United States, it's a little unusual. Um, it's taught in very few places, but it's taught in the mechanical engineering departments because they're dealing mostly with uh, moisture in air as opposed to moisture in materials. So it, there's two very philosophical differences between um, the classic American approach to building science or building physics versus the classic Canadian approach. Um, I think the Canadians are right in this. However, they're teaching it wrong because they're only teaching it from a heating perspective. Is there a single most important building science concept for North America? Yeah, keep the rain out of your damn building. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Anybody not get this? <laughs> Apparently, everybody. <laughs> there's, there's quite a few that don't get it. Yeah, right, if, you, if you can't keep the rain out of your building, like, give up. There's nothing else that you should, you know, worry about. But, you know, roofs leak, windows leaks, walls leaks, basements leaks, foundations leaks. You know, if, you know that's 80% of the problem is just dealing with liquid phase water. It's, it's amazing. You'd kind of think that after building 10,000 years on this planet, we'd have, like, that figured out. But apparently not. So 80% is liquid phase, and the other 20%? Is not liquid phase. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, that would make it vapor or solid. Right. In Canada, they worry about solid. In the United States, we only worry about solid basically in ice, you know, to keep our scotch cold. But um, we're mostly focused uh, with the vapor phase. You know, we kind of the liquid phase. You know, in building these beautiful buildings, what building science concepts do architects seemingly fail to understand? Well, that, look, if a building enclosure needs to separate the inside from the outside. And to do that, you have to keep the rain and groundwater out. Secondly, you need to keep the outside air out and the inside air in. Thirdly, you want to make sure that you keep the vapor out or let the vapor out, depending on where you are. And finally, you need to keep the heat out uh, in the summer and the heat in in the winter. And that's it. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to understand what you have to do. 
but if you're never taught this, you don't get it. And it's not just the architects. The contractors have forgotten this, and so have the engineers. In, in engineering, all we learn about is how to size a beam and how much air or fluid goes through a pipe or a duct. Um, you know, contractors were taught how to build things on time and on budget. We just have no idea about how they work or not. So we're getting all kinds of stuff being built on time and on budget that doesn't work. <laughs> and nobody's being taught it uh, uh, by the professions. It's, it's a great time to be a consultant. You kind of just walk around, shake your head, send them a bill, and move on to the next building. It's great. Well, Joe, I'm wondering, is, do you see that changing at all? Well, yeah, I mean, change is pretty easy to figure out in, in, in this country. Um, things become intolerably bad, and then they change. They are just beginning to become intolerably bad. Um, you know, nobody cared until people started taking other people's money away with respect to mold, right? Well, you know, it's a pretty good point, Joe. You know, you have all this litigation and so on and so forth, and a lot of building in parts of the country is done the building code. You know, where were the writers of the building code when building science concepts were being caught? Well, okay, the building code is a reactive document, not a proactive document. I'm gonna give you my little story of code development here. Um, look, not too many people understand that thousands of Americans would die every year 150, 200 years ago as a result of waterborne diseases. And it got intolerably bad, and so we had to regulate it. So we had to get the feces out of the water. Um, hence, we got a plumbing and sanitation code. So the first building code of any kind was a plumbing and sanitation code, because if you didn't have one, you would die. <laughs> I mean, you know, you think about it. The most important thing after a natural disaster is what? Clean right. water. All right, so then what happened? Well, you know, 100 years ago, Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern, lantern and burned down the city of Chicago. Now, there shouldn't have been a surprise. I mean, everybody knew it was coming. You couldn't put that kind of, that type of construction with that many people, with that type of lifestyle, and not lose in the American city. And we had a historic precedent, right? We, we lost uh, London three times, Rome twice, America was due, Chicago was the first. Not too many people will remember that the very next year we lost Boston, but nobody remembers the great Boston fire because Boston always finishes second. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we then had the second code added which was the fire code. Now, we called it a building code, but it wasn't a building code. It was a fire code. So we added a very sophisticated fire code to an already mature plumbing code. Then what happened? Well, we had structural failures. Uh, we had, um, you know, Hurricane Andrew. We had uh, the Northbridge earthquake, which shook us up literally and figuratively because it didn't behave the way we, plot, we thought. And so things became intolerably, ba intolerably bad, and we've just beginning, we're just finishing adding a sophisticated structural code. So we took a plumbing code, we then added a fire code, and we added the structural code, but only after things became intolerably bad. Now, the people who run the codes are the last people who happen to change them. You know, the fire people still dominate most of the building code writing. They're now being challenged for supremacy by the structural people. You know, structural people, you don't ask structural people about water control. And the fire people, they want buildings to be wet so they don't burn. So they're not the folks to ask. And so now it's the building science turn because we fix the plumbing and sanitation, we fix the fire, we fix the structure. Now we have to get the feces out of the air. and that's a moisture airflow uh, issue, and structural engineers, fire engineers, plumbing engineers are not the people to do it. So the code is always a decade to two decades behind addressing the current problems. Joe, with uh, the advent of the green building uh, revolution here, we're 
We've got a question. Let's see. Suddenly we see so many green buildings turn into buildings with major IAQ problems. Why is that, Joe? Well, because the architects and engineers have no idea about um, how buildings actually work. Architects are artists. Engineers strive to do the beams. Green involves a systems understanding, and that's not, um, not in the cards. You know, so we are going to see lots of failure in green buildings. Um, then it's going to get intolerably bad, and then they're going to work. There isn't a major green building that actually saves any energy. Isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> yes, it is. Say that again. Say that one more time. <laughs> isn't any major green building constructed that has saved any energy. Wow, that's amazing. See, it was, wow, wow, they're energy efficient, they're green. No, computer simulations say they are, but when they construct them, they don't work. Seattle City Hall is consuming three times the energy uh, of the 1960 building it replaced. Um, the San Francisco Federal Building is so uncomfortable that its occupants are suing the General Services Administration for glare and discomfort. Um, Sir Norman Foster's building, London City Hall, was hailed as the classic environmental beauty, greeny, weeny building of all time, the best in the world. And, you know, it's been up four years, and people are saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, it's actually not working very well, and we ought maybe ought not to talk about it. We, the Condé Nast building in New York, you know, man, oh, mayor came out, and you know, we got to do more of these buildings, and it's actually average. It's not saving any energy compared to all of the other buildings of a similar vintage. It just cost more, and it had a really, really good press agent. So my answer to these people is no awards until after the building is up and you look at the utility bill. You <laughs> compare it to a building of similar size, similar occupancy built 20 years ago. If you haven't saved any energy, shut up. Well, that says a bunch. Joe, in your career, has building science you know, ever been wrong? I mean, is, are, are there concepts that you were taught in school, you know, things that you believe that you know, out in the field that you found weren't what you thought? Well, yeah, I mean, look, building science, building physics, is like any scientific or engineering discipline. It ages, it matures, it becomes more sophisticated. If you look at structural engineering over the past 100 years, there's a world of difference of the way structural engineers look at problems today than we did 100 years ago. Well, the same thing in building physics. Building physics is a pretty young profession and it's beginning to mature and so it's not unusual for professions to change their view. I mean, I mean look at physics. We went from, you know, Newtonian mechanics to Einsteinian mechanics to quantum electrodynamics. You know, but that's you know that's three hundred and fifty years. Building science is about thirty, thirty five years and stuff that I learned thirty five years ago, and some of it is bang on, others, well, oops, we made a mistake. Uh, one of the classic examples was 35 years ago, we were preoccupied with keeping water out of buildings, uh, in other words, reducing wetting potentials, and we didn't realize that many of the technologies we used actually prevented the buildings from actually drying should they get wet or start out wet. We've learned that drying is more important than the prevention of wetting. So it's not whether or not something gets wet, it's does it dry. And so we're focusing more on drying rather than the prevention of wetting. What's well, a fundamental shift? It's a good one, but, you know, we didn't get it 35 years ago. We get it now. Um, I can hardly wait, you know, if I'm still around 35 years, depends on the quality of the beer, I guess, I drink, <laughs> to see what the next big shift is going to be. Joe, with, with uh, I guess, vapor barriers are another issue that come up a lot, uh, intended and unintended vapor barriers. Can you give us a little little background on where you know where they should be placed if ever well um, they should never be put on the inside of the building <laughs> unfortunately that's where we put most of them if they're going to be put in a building at all they should be on the outside and that's because the United States is dominated by air conditioning not on heating and moisture flow is pretty easy to understand it follows heat flow um, in heating climates, the inside is hot, the outside is cold, moisture flows from the inside to the outside. In cooling climates, the inside is cold, the outside is hot, and the moisture flows from the outside to the inside. So in a strictly 
heating-dominated climate, um, you put a vapor barrier on the inside. Well, the only place that we have a strictly heating-dominated climate is where we don't build a building with air conditioning. There's no place in the lower 48 states that people don't install air conditioning. So any time a building is air conditioned, thou shalt not put a vapor barrier on the inside. Now, if you have winter <laughs> and you still have air conditioning in the summer, it's not a good thing to put a vapor barrier on the outside. So most of the United States should be built where walls dry in in the summer and they dry out in the winter. In Florida, Miami, they're only going to want to dry in. So if you want to have a vapor retarder, knock yourself out, put it on the outside. Aside from that, you're better off not having one. Anyway. Okay. And that so that's a fundamental shift in thinking, my friends. Yes, it is, and it's it's something that we've uh, seen change. I think over the last twenty years, is that accurate? Yeah. Well, we, I just finished a ten-year fight to revise the building codes. I want you to know that I'm celebrating. I came back uh, on Wednesday of this week from uh, Palm Springs during the code hearings and. I won my last code battle, so I can go back to my home planet and retire. My work is done. We got the vapor barrier out of the code. All right. Congratulations. You know, Joe, what, what are your opinions on conditioning uh, attics and, and crawl spaces? Well, I mean, <laughs> you can build an attic that's conditioned, or you can build an attic that's unconditioned. You can build a crawl space that's conditioned or a crawl space that's not conditioned. In other words, you don't have to do one or the other. You can you have both options, and they should be a design choice. I like to condition crawl spaces, and I like to condition attics because I view that as wasted volume that I could use for something. In other words... You know, we should move and live in our attics. We should move and live into our below-grade spaces. Uh, we should put the thermal boundary and the water boundary and the air boundaries and the vapor control boundary at the outermost surface of the building, which means that everything to the inside is now usable space. I view an vented attic as a lot of material that's used in something that I can't use. Right? I mean, it's, you know, a lot of air up there lot of material and I'm not living it. You know, I, I like the idea of living in your attic, putting in dormers, moving up there. I like, you know, if i got a crawl space, I, I like to be able to store stuff and run my mechanics and use it. So I'm a proponent of using every cubic foot inside the scheme of the building. Having said that, you know, you don't have to. You can design them to be vented or unvented. You can design them to be conditioned or unconditioned. It's a design choice. If you want to have your mechanicals in either the basement or the attic, then would it be um, much more desirable to have those spaces conditioned? Well, let me turn it around and say you should always put your mechanical system inside the conditioned space. So if you're going to put them in the attic, the attic should therefore be conditioned. If you're going to put them in the basement, the basement should therefore be conditioned. Otherwise, don't put them in the attic or the basement. Why? Well, because your lungs are not worn outside of your chest. They're put inside of you. <laughs> <laughs> you want to put stuff that is important in um, controlling the distribution of air um, within a space that the distribution system is not harmed or damaged. If the system leaks, you don't want it to leak to the outside. I mean, it, I mean, you know, air-conditioned systems and furnaces are not cheap. They're very expensive. Why would you put them in a hot, humid attic? I mean, how stupid is that? It's going to rust and corrode. You know, why would you put them in a dank, wet basement? Don't you want the basement to be dry and warm so that your mechanical system isn't destroyed? I mean, you're paying thousands of dollars for you know, a 15-serial conditioning system with an electrically commutated motor with a, you know, 12-merv filter system with this electronic controller, and you're going to put it outside where crap couldn't get on it? How stupid is that? 
Joe, we... we often I know, I, I, these, these, these answers can't be that simple, right? Well, yeah, they are. <laughs> That's what we what need. Benjamin, what did Benjamin Franklin say? Common sense is very uncommon. uncommon. <laughs> Joe, can you talk a little bit about the importance of air pressure differentials in buildings? Well, if your building enclosure is designed to dry in both directions and you keep the rain out, it really doesn't matter much whether it sucks or blows. Having said that, if your building enclosure is marginal, the control of the pressure might become incredibly critical for it not being destroyed. So if you have vapor retarder in the wrong place, you have a flashing that's missing, your mechanical system is misbehaving, um, and you're in a cold climate, you know, controlling the air pressure might be the only thing that saves the building enclosure. So um, on the other hand, if the enclosure is built extremely well, it doesn't matter what the mechanical system does. Another way of sort of explaining this is I try to explain to architects and engineers that the architect is more important than the engineer. This annoys the engineers, and I do that deliberately to annoy them. And I point out that, look, the world's greatest mechanical engineer can't save a lousy building. In other words, you can't use a mechanical system to save a building that's screwed up. On the other hand, a really good building enclosure can tolerate a really stupid mechanical engineer. <laughs> so the architect has his, his or her destiny in their hands. So you can't blame the mechanical engineer for not saving your sorry ass because you didn't design the enclosure correctly. So a well-designed and constructed enclosure can tolerate excursions and pressure from a positive to negative side. Having said that, um, there are some buildings that, and some spaces in buildings that you want to control the pressure in. I don't know about you, but say I'm in a hospital, and say I'm in an operating theater, and you know they got me on the table and they've cut me open, and the inside of me is just lying there. I don't want crap from the outside coming in and falling into me. What do you think? That probably <laughs> would be stupid. So I'd probably want to, like, pressurize that space. I, that would probably be real important. If I'm making computer chips that are, you know, are incredibly sensitive, I'm going to probably want to pressurize it and filter that air. If, you know, I've got a sick child or a sick um, grandmother and I want to protect them in a pressurized space, that's pretty darn important. Um, if I'm, you know, refining plutonium in the Ebola virus, I probably want it under a negative pressure, or say, you know, I wanted to smoke in my house, my cigar, and not let my wife know, I probably want that part of the building to suck. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are always going to be places in buildings that you're going to want to control the pressure across. But most of the time, it really doesn't matter whether the building is slightly positive or slightly negative if the enclosure, if you haven't done stupid things. So my motto is, don't do stupid things to the enclosure, and the pressure really doesn't matter unless you're doing a hospital or infectious disease control or manufacturing computer chips, or say you have an art gallery or a museum and you're protecting the Declaration of Independence or the Mona Lisa. But the rest of the time, yeah, who cares? Joe, I'm, I'm curious. We, we're going to take a short break in a moment, but while we're on that subject, now that you know we're tightening up homes, putting in more insulation, and moving the uh, enclosure up to the top of the attic, do you recommend bringing in some outdoor air as a part of the mechanical system? The answer is um, yeah. I mean, you, you can never make a building too tight but you can underventilate it. In other words, all building enclosures should have controlled air change, uh, independent of the tightness. Um, so I don't think the question should be, well, we need to do this because we're making our buildings tight. We've always need to do it. We've always needed to do it. Um, leaky buildings aren't healthy. Leaky buildings are often the most dangerous of all because you don't know where the air is coming from. I don't want the air into my house coming from a moldy, dank crawl space. I don't want it coming in 
from the garage. We would call that the Kervokian option. So I want a tight <laughs> enclosure, and I want to pick where I bring my air in. So the healthiest buildings of all are tight enclosures, or you, you pick where the air is going to come into it. You get to meter it. You get to decide how much you want, when you want it, where you want it to go. And you have the choice to clean it, to filter it, to heat it, to cool it, to humidify it, to dehumidify it. I'm a control freak. I can't control anything until I have an enclosure. So the phrase is, before you can control air, you must first close air. So you build me an enclosure and then bring in the air you want. But that doesn't mean you can't put in windows and doors. It just means that I have the choice to, hey, how about this, open the window or door when I feel like opening the window or door. Not as easy in many buildings these days as it used to be, is it, Joe? Well, it's because we have to whack the architect on the head and then get the engineer's attention. I'm working on both of them. <laughs> You're working on it, huh? Well, Joe, we're going to take a short break to thank our sponsors and bring you right back. First, I want to say thanks to Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. we like to thank Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dryease Products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com like to thank John Don Products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com and last but not least the Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com there's a leak in the soul building, and my soul, Lord, I've got to move. I tell you, my soul, I tell you, my soul has got to move. There's a leak in the soul building, and my soul, I've got another building. All right, we're back with Joe Steebrook. And Joe, the next issue I wanted to cover with you is one that I wrestle with all the time and I get a lot of different uh, feedback on, and that is the, uh, the issue with respect to crawl spaces and how we fix problems with crawl spaces. I know that you have some information on your website, but I'd like to talk a little bit about it here on the air. Okay. Uh, the best crawl space in the world is one filled with concrete called a slab. If you don't like that, dig it out and call it a basement. Okay. Um, in Massachusetts, where I live, we call crawl spaces the John Kerry Foundation. That's for folks that couldn't make up their mind between a slab and a basement. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we've got a whole bunch of these crawl spaces already built and they're causing problems. So what's the best fix or retrofit to help solve some of the issues with these moldy, dirty, dusty right. crawl spaces that have the mechanical system in them as well oftentimes? Well, the question is, is do you have access to OPM? And that's other people's money. Right. If uh, I can give you the quick and dirty and cheap way, or I can give you a more elaborate way. Why don't you one give us both? Yeah. Or, or, or all three. Yeah. <laughs> or all three. Yeah. One of the easiest ways is that you, look, you've got to keep the groundwater out of it first. So uh, you, you, you need to have a perimeter drain. You can't have standing water in your crawl space. All right, so handle the drainage. And I'm not going to get into details on how to do that. I'm assuming that most people are not colossally stupid and can figure that out. Then you put in a, con a continuous ground cover. And then you close the crawl space vents and put in a small continuously operating exhaust fan, maybe 75 CFM, it's like a radon fan. So you basically make the crawl space negative. So instead of having air and bad, nasty stuff migrate from the crawl space up into your building, you're pulling building air into the crawl space now. So you're basically sucking on the crawl space, creating a zone of negative pressure. And and you don't care that you've left everything in there. In other words, you don't 
decontaminate, you don't seal, you don't clean, you don't scrub. The people that hate that approach, of course, are the restoration people because they don't get to charge ten, twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> Say, oh, you gotta, you gotta put in the guys in the, you know, the moon suits with the HEPA vacuum and the ET and all of this garbage. You know, and you don't get to sell all of your microbial crap. You just suck on the thing and you're done. Well, okay, so what's wrong with that approach? Well, you know, the fans got to run. <laughs> like forever. Duh. And, um, you know, sometimes people do stupid stuff, like they put a furnace in there in the crawl space. I mean, how stupid is that? Well, if you suck on the crawl space, you backdraft the furnace or you backdraft the water heater, and then they burn down and they die, and that kind of like will ruin their day. So, you know, you want to, I don't want to scare people, but on the other hand, you know, look, it's a very simple solution, it's very powerful, but you have to pick your spots. Um, now, next approach is you... Wait, 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 I, I got one question on that approach. Let's say sure. we did that and we put this continuous um, ground, cover. ground cover on. Uh, yeah. What I'd like you to do is, is clarify it. Is that strictly just ground cover? Should it be applied to the walls or not? I think I understand what you mean, but uh, you know we have certain situations where people may want to run that all the way up the, uh, the you know the perimeter wall. So I, I want to clarify: should it just be on the ground? Okay, um, let's understand what we're trying to do first. The I want to maintain the crawl space under a negative pressure. I'm going to do that with an exhaust fan. The leakier the enclosure, the more air I have to extract, and the bigger the fan, the more operating the cost, the more likely I'm going to screw this up. So the first thing that I want to do is make the enclosure tight. That plastic sheet's function is mostly to do that. I don't have to run it up the walls to make the crawl space tight for me to depressurize it. The second function of that ground cover is to prevent evaporation or reduce evaporation of water from the ground into the crawl space. So it serves two functions. Now, um, so I don't need to run it up the walls in order to do that in most applications. The only time I'd want to run it up the walls is if the walls are so damn leaky that that helps me make that tighter. Now, let's now say that I got water in the liquid phase entering a block wall and it's being wicked through by capillarity and this water is evaporating through the block or concrete walls into the crawl space into the inside. Well, you know, I can handle that moisture by air change, you know, by simply sucking dry air from the house and then extracting it from the crawl space. But I think it's kind of a good idea to reduce that evaporation, and so now I would consider um, coating the walls with something to prevent the inward wetting or the inward evaporation. I could do that by running the membrane up the wall. I could cover it with, um, um, you know, a, a waterproofing system to reduce that. So now I'm reducing the moisture load in the crawl space by dealing with the walls, and that may be a separate issue, or usually is a separate issue, for making the crawl space tight enough for me to depressurize it. Now, let's say that I wanted to do something that didn't rely on the freaking fan. Well, okay, what do I do now? Well, now i got to make it tight, i got to make it dry, and i got to take all of the garbage out. Well, okay, that means it's worth it to me to have somebody professionally clean and decontaminate that space and a professional to put in a continuous ground cover and a professional to treat the perimeter of my foundation wall to make sure that moisture is coming into that space. So now I've turned it into a conditioned space as part of my house that doesn't require a continuously operating fan for the life of the building. Now I've turned that crawl space from being an outside space into an inside space that doesn't require a mechanical system in order for it to function safely. So. 
Okay. I can spend the money on operating costs, or I can spend the money up front on changing the changing the space that I don't need to spend the operating costs. You know, we've got a couple of questions actually from listeners, and I have one actually that that was texted uh, to me yesterday. Uh, this this gentleman put the uh, proverbial vapor barrier. You know, in his basement, he used 10 mil, you know, plastic film, which a lot of people use. You know, he bought it at a, uh, you know, construction supply company. And his concern is, is now that he's put it down, I guess it's working because now he can see condensation, he can see vapor. In certain situations, he can even see some liquid, uh, you know, underneath, and he's concerned about it. So I, I guess my question is. What should someone see once they put this vapor barrier on top of the soil? Should they see condensation? Should they see perhaps a little bit of liquid water underneath there, or should they not see it? Well, they, they, they should. And my, the way I tell them, I, this is going to sound stupid, but I tell them to buy a white one or a green one or a black one so they can't see through it. <laughs> okay, so right. Freaking bother them. I understand. You know, now, you know, I can't tell you how many times I got this call, and I'm saying, you moron. It's working. It's <laughs> under the plastic. It's not in the freaking house. But I don't want to take those calls because I don't like people. I don't like you guys. I know. I don't like to talk, and so by making it white or black, I don't have to answer the question. No problem. Let me let me let me let me more be more polite about it. It's doing exactly what you wanted to do. The fact that there's water under it means that it's working. Gotcha. Now. There's another reason, rather than a psychological one, to use to purchase a black or green plastic. Um, they last longer, two to three times longer than the clear stuff, because the carbon black that's used to make it green or black is an antioxidant. It helps protect it from ultraviolet light and ozone. So the blacker it is, the darker it is, the longer it lasts. Now, Joe, we've got another text question that I want to run by you, and I, I think it's probably fairly obvious, but you were talking about the cheapest fix. The question was, where possible, wouldn't it be preferable to apply the moisture membrane or waterproofing on the outside of the block foundation? Sure. Um, waterproofing done on the outside of the structure makes more sense than waterproofing done on the inside of a structure. And the reason for that is, is that, you know, it's always better to keep the water out before it gets into the structure. There are practical limitations on that, of course. In other words, not many people can afford to dig up a crawl space or a basement from the outside to do this. Um, in my own home, despite being a handsome, world-famous, extremely successful building scientist, I <laughs> did it from the inside, A, because it was cheaper, and B, because I was lazy. <laughs> but would it have worked better on the outside? The answer is yes. Now, you were... Talking about I, also don't, I also don't exercise, and I don't eat good well. <laughs> so I make all kinds of compromises, even though I know that it's not the best thing to do. Now, on occasion, we see people attaching, uh, like, a rigid foam board to the basement wall or to the crawl space wall. Do you recommend that? And if so, how do you recommend they attach it? The um, answer is yes, I recommend it. Um, I, if it's done on the inside, which is probably the most practical place to do it, you need to choose one that doesn't burn um, because that would ruin your day. <laughs> um, anybody who doesn't understand that foam burns should be basically a you know, nightclub owner in you know, Rhode Island. Right, right? Right, so right. the point is, is that you should choose a foil-faced foam that's rated to be left exposed in a crawl space. If you're not going to do that, you can choose a foam that... Uh, is not fire rated, but you have to cover it with something that doesn't burn, that has a fire rating, and that the only products are fiber cement, like you know, tile backer rod, cement board, or gypsum board. But you have to choose a gypsum board without paper, because the whole point of, of this is to choose products that aren't going to grow mold. So use plastic foam insulations, because they're not water sensitive, but because they burn, you have to protect them, or you choose one that doesn't care if it's exposed to flame. How do you attach it? Well, you can glue it, you can screw it, you can attach it with uh, a tapcon, which is kind of a, a screw drill kind of a thing. Um, all kinds of ways. It doesn't matter how you do it. Now, when these uh, 
ground covers go up the wall. We see them go up the wall oftentimes, sort of like an empty swimming pool. And on occasion, they will also put some insulation behind there. How far up the wall do you go, Joe? Well, okay. Uh, the insulation should be put on the inside of the pool liner. Think about that. So we're, we're putting in a pool liner. And I don't have a problem if you run the pool liner all the way up the wall. If you do that, the insulation goes to the inside of the pool liner. You should choose an insulation that doesn't care about water. So, you know, one of these plastic insulations. Then you then have to make the fire decision. So you put in the pool liner first, choose the insulation second, then you decide how to protect it from fire third. Okay. Great. Joe, I want to go into uh, real quickly. You had an article in Ashray's journal. It was called A Bridge Too Far. Can you tell us what you mean by the Harley-Davidson architecture? <laughs> well, I, I love motorcycles. I, I don't ride them anymore because I'm a coward, but when I was a kid, I, I rode them until I had an accident. You know how that is. Well, you've got these, you know, beautiful bikes that have these radiator fins on them, right? They're air-cooled. And so you've got, you know, you know what I mean by a, a radiator fin, right? Yes. Okay, well... Um, if you take a high-rise building and you put on a concrete balcony, the balcony is basically a projection of the uh, floor slab. Well, concrete is a giant conductive fin. And so buildings with balconies, I refer to them as Harley-Davidson architecture because the balconies, the exposed slabs basically are air-cooled structures. So every time you have a slab edge projection, you're basically radiating heat to outer space. So these are air-cooled apartment buildings. So I'm an advocate of not building buildings with balconies. I mean, the only people on them are smokers anyway, and we don't care about them. <laughs> so I, you know, that annoys the architects, and so I do that deliberately. Um, but you could have a balcony. You just don't have to have an extension of the slab, you can hang the balcony and so that it's you know, pin connections so that you don't have a continuous thermal transfer. We haven't viewed this as being important until recently because until recently energy was so cheap that it didn't matter, right? I mean, <laughs> energy is never going to go above $100 a barrel of oil, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, we're going to have electricity going to be so cheap we don't have to meter it. Remember that? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, Joe, let me let me ask you before I go too far on these ASHRAE. Are these available on your website, or do you have to get them through the ASHRAE Journal? Um, they will be available uh, on our website in approximately a month. Um, up till now, you're going to have to get them through the ASHRAE uh, through ASHRAE directly. But in a month, they're all going to be posted. Um, and I, out of courtesy, I've had an, have an arrangement with ASHRAE that. I won't post an article until they actually publish it. <laughs> <laughs> nice of you, Joe. <laughs> that, would be, that would be pretty reasonable. Uh, premature publication. <laughs> watch it. This is a watch it. This is a family. I, I, I understand that. I understand that. We're actually uh, unrated, so you've right. been you've been really good, uh, though, Joe. Yeah, I have to say, I, I'm really uh, I'm surprised actually. But uh, another one is wood is good, but strange and one of the quotes is wait for it wood curtain walls can you tell us a little more about what you mean there and is anybody in the united states building this way right now well i'm sure answer nobody in the united states is building this way right now but people are building this way in australia and new zealand um steel is 400 times more conductive than wood um so if you take a steel stud, an ins five and a half inch steel stud, and insulate it with an R19 bat, there's so much conductivity in the steel stud that um, the effective thermal resistance of the wall assembly is about R4, R5. So you throw away 75 to 80 percent of the thermal resistance because of the conductivity of the steel. With a wood stud, you're only throwing away about 15 percent. And so if you're serious about energy, you shouldn't use steel studs, or you should put 100% of the insulation on the outside. Well, we can use wood studs 
in commercial buildings to solve the conductivity problem. Yeah, but doesn't wood burn? Well, not if you add salt to it. So you have fire-treated wood. And fire-treated wood actually outperforms steel in a fire because steel still needs to be protected. Steel studs melt and they deform. And so a treated wood wall um, actually outperforms a steel stud wall in a fire, and you don't have the conductivity. It's just that it's a very new concept, and people are like, huh? Oh, Yogi, the ranger's not going to like this. And so that's the reaction you get. So you got to... Yeah. But we're in a time of revolutionary change, and we have to thank Al-Qaeda for that and the oil prices. Joe, we're getting a bunch of questions here online. I don't know how we'll keep up, but let's let's do this. Why don't we go to the roundup and then try and bring in some of these okay. questions, Cliff? Yeah, hang on. you got to do... We're going to be right back with you. Last week during the show, actually, uh, I received an email notification that Mark Hansen, the attorney for the IICRC, passed away. Uh, we, Joe and I decided we didn't want to make it public because uh, we weren't sure who knew and who didn't know, and I received it because I'm on the board of directors. Uh, Mark Hansen, in the words of Daryl Paulson, also a board member who's known him for a long time, was a good friend and a man of great character. He was just, fair, strong, dedicated, loving, humorous, honest, professional, smart, humble, tender-hearted, compassionate, and a faithful person. The world has lost a great man, and heaven has gained one. I'll pray for the great comforter to help us with the great losses we mourn. I am grateful I knew him. He made a positive difference in lives. I will miss him deeply. Those are the words of Daryl Paulson. Move him out, hit him up, hit him up, move him out, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, cut him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Right. Welcome back, Joe. We've got uh, what we call the roundup here. We've got Glenn Feldman. We've got, uh, but first we're going to, we've got a bunch of late questions that came in here, and I want to uh, run them by you here from listeners. Um, the first one is if building codes are minimal, why are they not being enforced? Uh, we see problem after problem in new buildings. Look, we, we don't. Code enforcement is a matter of priorities. Um, the cities and municipalities view building codes as a way of collecting revenue, and they actually starve uh, the enforcement officers from being able to actually do their jobs. So the reason they're not being enforced is because they're not being funded properly. They look at it as, as a revenue stream. It's like they, they want their money for nothing and their chicks for free. <laughs> so don't blame, the, don't blame the poor code official. Blame the city fathers who actually don't support them. Okay, Cliff, uh, go ahead. Uh, Joe, how do you feel about recycled shipping containers being used for building? <laughs> Another one of these stupid European architectural Euro trash concepts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, regarding wood treated with salt, won't the salt tend to attract and hold moisture and form a vapor barrier and facilitate possible microbial issues? And all the salt reduces that. Yes, the equilibrium moisture content goes up a point or two, but it doesn't care. Think of it as, as you know, meat rots, but you add salt, you get salami. So think of this as salami wood. <laughs> <laughs> Give me, I got one more, and then we're going to bring Glenn in here. Do you foresee a change in the building codes in his section of the country, which is Maryland, that will eliminate required vents in crawl spaces? Um, the I-codes were changed in 2001 to allow conditioned crawl spaces, so he doesn't have to wait. He just has to get somebody that's capable of actually reading the codes that they already have. All right. All well, right. thanks to uh, Chuck and uh, the Radon dude and Stacy, and uh, we've got the Mold Wonk, and uh, what he wants to know what time the barbecue starts <laughs> here. I don't know. I don't know. Let's bring Glenn Feldman in. I'm sure he has something to add. Glenn? 
How are you, gentlemen? Great, Glenn. Good to have you. Joe, I was expecting, you know, Chris Rock today, and instead I got Bill Bill Cosby. I, you, you, you're not playing blue today. Okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. Um, BuildingSciences.com, the website uh, that, that you have, is an outstanding resource for people. But there's so much going on right now with the U.S. Green Building Council and other organizations that are pushing out everything green. Where do you recommend people go for the best information? And I'll throw in a side question. Uh, what are you seeing happening within these organizations like USGBC and programs like LEAD that you don't like? Well, okay. Um, I actually like them. They're just young, and they're going to uh, evolve and mature. Um, it's like you know, everybody's heart is in the right place. It's just that the information and the technology isn't being applied appropriately. And so you stumble and you trip. And so it's, you know, what did uh, Kermit the Frog say? It's not easy being green. And, uh, you know, they're learning that, you know, platitudes and, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> be safe, don't do stupid things. Well, okay, well, what the hell does that mean? The details are real important. And they're going to have to get there following the fundamental rules of physics. And so I'm <clears throat> my job is to harass them and tease them and stimulate them into improving. I don't want to destroy them and stop them. I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to basically re, renew um, architecture and engineering in the way that it, it ought to be actually functioning. I think architects need to become more technical, engineers need to be more aesthetic, and the buildings are going to benefit as a result of those professions actually working, working it out. And so this is, this is actually a good thing. In terms of where to find information, you have to understand that only I am right. <laughs> right so, Excuse right. me. Well, okay, okay, so here's, I mean, I, that was more than tongue-in-cheek. Part of the problem with the Internet is that it's not that we don't have enough information, it's that we have all information instantly, all of the time. And the difficulty is figuring out which is good and, 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 and which isn't. And so, you know, there are are multiple sources, and you, you have to sort of pick and choose. Well, where do I go? I, well, I, I go to the National Research Council of Canada. I go to Canada Mortgage and Housing. And then I have to synthesize it because they have really good stuff, but half of it doesn't apply because the United States is an air-conditioning climate. <clears throat> I go to ASHRAE, and, you know, I pick and choose. Um, the trouble is is that need sort of a base minimum information level of understanding before you begin to pick and choose your spots. It's like um, learning about wine or learning about beer, right? You you latch on to a few fundamentals and then it's sort of a lifelong lifelong process. I latch on to researchers that way. There are a few key people that I latch on to and I say, oh, I really want to listen to what that person says. Yeah, I was thrilled to hear that you had Andy Ask on last week. You know, he, you know, when he writes stuff, you, you you read it. I happen to read your rag, too. So it is, you know, kind of you pick your spots. I, I pick organizations, and then within the organizations, I pick people, and I read their stuff. So that's how I do it. Speaking of my rag, uh, for everyone out there, go into the archives of ieconnections.com and look up how to beat Al-Qaeda with insulation. I say this in, in all sincerity, Joe. It, it may be my favorite piece ever written by anybody in, in 100 issues of our newspaper. I, I love that piece. I've shown it to so many people, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful piece. So look oh, up here, right. something on the Internet. Thank you. I had, I had a lot of fun writing it, and it's the one piece that the Ashray Journal turned down. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I'll second that, Glenn. That was excellent. Uh, Cliff has one more question for you, then we've got a roundup. Well, actually, I, I think I have ten questions for you, yeah. Joe. What I'd like you to do is just give me one of your top ten lists that you've put together from one to ten or ten to one, however you want to do it. Oh, okay. Um, don't let northerners design buildings in the south. Okay. <laughs> Number nine. <laughs> um, don't put vapor barriers on the inside of air-conditioned buildings. Number eight. Um, don't build crawl spaces. <laughs> Number seven. 
<laughs> if you're going to build a crawl space, um, make sure that it's either completely inside the building or completely outside the building. <laughs> Number and, six. Well, I mean, let, me, let me evaluate. Oh, go let, ahead. Me sort of, go ahead. let me sort of elaborate that. Look, the problem isn't the crawl space. The problem is, is people haven't decided whether the air in the crawl space belongs inside the building or belongs outside. If we were to build a crawl space that's vented, we want to make sure that it's completely connected to the outside. That makes sense in a flood area. You're building in Charleston, South Carolina, for gosh sakes. You build the building up and you have an air barrier and a vapor barrier under the floor and you don't care what happens underneath it. You're building in, you know, Chicago and you have a crawl space, you know, it should be a mini basement, it should be inside. So if you're going to build a crawl space, first of all, don't build one. And if you're going to build one, make it outside or inside. Pick one. Okay. What about number six? Don't build attics. <laughs> number five. <laughs> well, if you're going to build an attic, decide whether you want it outside or inside. Inside. Number four. <laughs> Don't attach a garage to your house. Okay. Oh, that's a good that's one. A good okay. One. I haven't heard that one before. Number three. Number three. If you're going to attach a garage to your house, make sure it's not connected to your house. Number two. <laughs> Put your furnace and air conditioner inside your house. <laughs> Number one. If you're going to put your furnace and air conditioner inside the house, make sure it's sealed combustion or you die. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. This thank was, you, Joe. We're going to have to have you back in hey, the future. Definitely. I, I think we only got through half of our uh, interview stuff. Let me just finish by saying this, Joe. Uh, is there anything that we missed that you'd really like to add? This is the greatest country in the world, and we should be proud of it. Thank you for that. And one time, can you give the listeners your website so they can go and get some of the great free information that you put on there? www.buildingscience.com Joe, thank you so much. And we'd also like to quickly thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connection the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And the Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. Okay, well, this is Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, Joe Steebrook, to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, the wingman, Chris Boyzell. We hope our technical doctor, director, Dr. Dieter, is having himself a beer in Aruba. I think we could put a safe bet on that one. And most importantly, to the growing group of loyal listeners. And, hey, thanks, HIF gang, H-I-F gang out there. You know who you are. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next week on the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.